My name is Diego Rodriguez Pinzon. Uh, I am professorial lecturer in residence at the Washington College of Law, American University, and co-director of the Academy on Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in that same institution. I have been invited to speak about the Inter-American Human Rights System, and specifically about the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, uh, regarding its working methods, regarding its mandate, and the impact that it has had in the hemisphere. First of all, let me explain briefly what uh, issues I'm going to be trying to deal in this conversation uh, with you. In the first place, I will be dealing with the creation of the Inter-American system itself, to frame then the conversation about the Inter-American Commission and its mandate. Uh, I will be touching upon, among others, some notable points, some notable aspects of the practice and work of the Inter-American Commission that I do believe can be important to understand the scope and impact of this international supervisor body in the Americas. This said, let us begin with uh, the creation of the Inter-American Human Rights System. This uh, hemispheric regime was created in 1948. There were two single very important moments in the creation of this regional system. The first one, of course, is the adoption of the Charter of the Organization of American States, the constitutional instrument of the institution that will house the supervisory human rights mechanisms in the future. The Charter of the OAS is a very important instrument from a legal perspective, of course, taking into account that it's a multilateral international treaty with binding obligations for all state parties, which is a very important framework and base for the subsequent work that the Inter-American Commission will develop based on the mandate that it received uh, in later uh, decades. The Charter of the Organization of American States has almost one of the main principles, the promotion of human rights. The issues of human rights were not necessarily spelled out in very detailed way in the Charter itself, but the reference to human rights being one of its core principles has been enough to instrument, to inform the interpretation of subsequent work, both for the Commission and the political organs of the Organization of American States. The second very important instrument that was adopted simultaneously with the Charter of the Organization of American States is the Declaration on the Rights and Duties of Men the Declaration on Human Rights, if you want. This declaration has several interesting characteristics, but I think the first one has a, a very important historic connotation. The declaration was indeed the first international contemporary human rights instrument adopted after World War II. In fact, it pre-existed or preceded the Universal Declaration on Human Rights by several months. It was adopted in May of 1948, which again makes it a very important reference regarding the creation and development of international human rights law, both in the universal and regional uh, level. Uh, the declaration itself is an important instrument also from another perspective. It resembles the structure of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights uh, in the sense that it has both economic, social, and cultural rights and civil and political rights 
in the same instrument. They are compiled in the same manner as the UN Declaration did. Additionally, it has some specific references to duties, which can be a controversial notion, but also a provocative notion for future legal exploration regarding the interaction of international human rights law and duties in the same instrument. The uh, American Declaration, among others, has served then as the first normative basis for all subsequent work, particularly by the Inter-American Commission, as we are going to be exploring in a, a second. Uh, let me at this point mention, I think it's very important to take into account that in later decades, another very important normative instrument was adopted by the Organization of American States, which is the American Convention on Human Rights, adopted in 1969, and we are talking several decades after the declaration was adopted, and only entered into force in 1978. This very important instrument, the real uh, convention on human rights of our region, is the source not only of binding legal obligations regarding human rights law in the hemisphere, but additionally is the source of the creation of the highest institution in the land regarding human rights, the American, uh, the Inter-American Court on human rights. So we had to wait several decades after the creation of the Inter-American human rights system as such to see a tribunal in the same way as the European system or the African system have a tribunal. And let us say at this point that it's a very important and significant event, taking into account that the Inter-American Court on Human Rights is the only all-hemispheric tribunal that exists right now in the Americas. It happens to be a human rights uh, tribunal. Uh, the American Convention differs a bit from the Declaration from a normative point of view in the sense that uh, it only recognized civil and political rights plus maybe the uh, right to property that could be reputed as an economic right. But in general terms, it really focused on the issue of civil and political rights, leaving the adoption and recognition of economic, social, and cultural rights to a subsequent protocol that was adopted uh, years later and complemented the normative structure of the American Convention on Human Rights. The uh, convention itself has an additional uh, benefit to the work of the Commission that it amplifies the mandate of the Commission regarding the promotion and protection on human rights in several aspects that, of course, are not uh, extremely significant, though very important and notable. Hopefully, we'll have time to make a couple of references to that subsequently in the conversation. Let us now move to talk a bit about the Inter-American Commission and some of the most important moments of its creation and development. We said before, 1948, Charter, Declaration, and only until 1959, the Organization of American States did adopt a resolution by which they created the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. 
This resolution uh, was adopted by plenipotentiary ministers of foreign affairs. So we did not have a treaty by which the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights was created. It was created in an ad hoc way, which has, of course, significant implications regarding, among others, the normative value of its own decisions or reports. However, states came together to say, to a certain extent, we need a supervisory organ. It has been 10 years since that declaration was adopted, and the states did not agree to an American convention that could have created both a commission and a court, to a certain extent, looking at what was happening across the Atlantic in the European system. So that political decision was to create the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights through this very ad hoc me mechanism and give it initially a promotional mandate. The commission then finally was able to begin its work in 1960, once its statute was adopted and put in place by states. At this point, let me mention uh, this very important element regarding the normative or legal value of the, uh, of the statute of the commission. The statute is adopted by states, not by the commission itself. It means that it's the instrument who, through which states transmitted their consent to create the commission and give it its mandate. It's a very important uh, instrument and has been modified only a couple of times throughout its history. We'll talk about those uh, two of the most important moments of modification of this statute by states. But bear in mind that the statute is not adopted by the commission, it is adopted by states. To a certain extent, it's a quasi-convention reference regarding the way the commission should work to the future. The commission began its work, first session in 1960, and from the first moment, it began to see that it needed to have a more detailed mandate that it lacked until that point. States only gave a promotional mandate to the commission. That means that the commission was able to produce reports, was able to perform on-site visits. The commission was able to issue a, a re press releases. The commission was able uh, to give advice to states and cooperate with states uh, in order to help them implement international law obligations. However, it could not entertain cases to determine the possible international responsibility of states for violations of international human rights obligations. Uh, the system, and the commission specifically, began to feel the pressure from victims, civil society organizations, and other interested in furthering the tools and mechanisms that the commission could use to seek the protection of human rights from the international level. Therefore, the Commission very quickly began to ask the political organs of the Organization of American States that it needed a mandate not only to promote human rights, but also to protect human rights, to adjudicate cases, to receive petitions that would argue violations of human rights by specific states of the Americas, seeking to establish international responsibility, and eventually allocate re necessary reparations to the victims of such violations. This happened pretty, pretty quickly. 1965, states fi finally acted upon the request by the Commission 
to modify its statute and added a provision by which the commission was now mandated to receive, to entertain cases prior the exhaustion of national remedies in each specific case. It was a quite simple provision that basically followed the uh, practice that existed until then in the exercise of adjudication of international human rights law in other uh, regions. The Commission then, with this mandate, began to deploy these additional tools to adjudicate cases. We can say, at this point, 1965, that the first individual, or I would say, complaint procedure regarding violations of human rights has been created and it binded every state in the Americas, it binded every state that was party to the organization of American state, to the charter of the organization. So every state since 1965 is subject not only to the promotional mandate of the Commission, but also to the individual complaint procedure of the Commission, which makes it a pretty unique tool if we consider that, for example, in the future, not all states would have ratified the American Convention on Human Rights and subject themselves to the international complaint procedure establishing that instrument. That left this mechanism as the only existing mechanism until our days that is available for victims or that want to bring their complaints internationally against every state party of the Organization of American States. Uh, this said, we should move to another additional seminal moment in the process of evolution and development of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which is 1967. Uh, I mentioned to you before that there were only a few modifications of the statute of the Commission, but I didn't mention to you that there were also modifications to the Charter of the Organization of American States, and that happened in 67. The states uh, agreed in uh, what is called the Protocol of Buenos Aires to modify the Convention among, and, among other things, established that the Commission was no longer this ad hoc mechanism, gravitating without any a clear framework uh, around the OEAS uh, charter, but now it would belong to the charter of the organization. In fact, it was included, it was inserted in the architecture of the Organization of American States as one of its principal organs one of the highest designations of authority within the administrative structure of the organizations of American states. This said, it meant clearly that at this point, all those states that first had, in 1948, agreed to the American Declaration on Human Rights, all those states that subsequently had converged to create the Inter-American Commission in 1959, and that subsequently in 65 had given mandate to the Inter-American Commission to receive and entertain cases, now indicate in the framework of a binding multilateral treaty that this organ with those characteristics belongs now to the hard framework of the organization of American states. Pretty significant moment in the process of development of the Inter-American Commission. After this event, very quickly, we see the uh, uh, most important event, if 
in the development of international human rights law in the region, which is the finally adoption of the American Convention on Human Rights in 1969. A very important process that took almost two decades, as I mentioned to you, during the 50s, there were discussions about the need to have a, a legal framework, clear legal framework regarding the promotion and protection of human rights, and that happened throughout even the 60s. In fact, during the 60s, the Inter-American Commission produced a draft text of an American convention regarding freedom of expression that in the end was never adopted, but ended up being incorporated into the text of the American Convention on Human Rights in several of its provisions. Uh, however, 1969, we finally have the text adopted, open for signature and ratifications by states, members of the Organization of American States, which, again, would be a very important reference regarding the protection and promotion of human rights. In any case, it took almost a decade for this instrument to enter into force. As we all know, international law has these pachydermic uh, rhythms in some cases, and it's not different here in the region in the Organization of American States. Almost 10 years so that this instrument will enter into force. But finally, 1978, we finally see this instrument come alive. And that meant several things simultaneously. First of all, the Commission sees its mandate amplified and articulated on the basis not only of the charter and a mandate by states to supervise the American Declaration norms, but now in the framework of a multilateral convention, clearly binding, with clearly spelled out powers to the Commission and clear uh, effects of its own reports and decisions. Uh, furthermore, the fact that the Commission uh, will entertain cases not only on the basis of the declaration charter system, but now on the basis also of the American Convention, began to link the Commission to this very important process, which is the route to the Inter-American Court on Human Rights. Once the American Convention entered into force, the Tribunal of the Americas, the American Inter-American Court on Human Rights was created and came to life finally in 1980, when it was established. The Commission then turned to be a very important part of the process of individual complaints to the Inter-American Court on Human Rights. Uh, to put it in very simple terms, the Commission was placed by states through this treaty as the key to the court. Every petition will have to go through the Commission in order to reach the court. That was true in 1978, 1980, and it is true now. It is still true now. That's the system that exists nowadays. So interestingly enough, the Inter-American Commission is now part of the only international adjudicatory body that has a judicial dimension. The Commission is part of it, is not a different process. Nowadays, it belongs to one and the same route for individual complaints. And I think it's extremely important to keep this in mind and bear in mind that we don't have two systems of supervision in the Americas. In 1978, everything came together and we really have one system when we deal with cases 
under the American Convention on Human Rights. That said, the Commission has another hat that remains and operates in a parallel way to the Convention system, which is that one that we have been talking since the beginning, the Declaration Charter System of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights that allows it to do promotional work and to entertain cases to protect rights under the American Declaration regarding all those states that have not yet ratified the American Convention on Human Rights. And regarding those states that have ratified the American Convention on Human Rights, the Convention itself indicates that it does not exclude the effects of the Declaration, the act of ratification of that Convention. So they coexist. Any controversy regarding the coexistence of those two regimes is solved by the Convention itself. So the Commission is the organ that has this dual dimension, these two hats, if you want. It supervises compliance on the basis of the American Convention on Human Rights, and it also supervises all OEA's states under the Charter Declaration regime. It's important to have this clear because it has some interesting and in some cases even significant interactions in cases or in situations in which both the declaration and that convention could apply. Let's move now into the uh, uh, commission itself. Let's look at uh, how it's structured and some of the most notable aspects of its work. In the first place, let me tell that the Commission is a seven-member institution. It is integrated by seven independent experts acting in their individual capacity. They do not represent their states of nationality. And also, interestingly enough, uh, and uh, quite controversial, is the fact that they are still, they are not full-time officials. They work in a part-time basis, they are designated or elected uh, as ad honorem workers of the Organization of American States. So these seven commissioners work in this framework. They are based uh, in Washington, D.C. When I say they, is the commission itself based in Washington, D.C., because each one of the commissioners, being ad honorem, non-paid officials, usually live in their countries and work in other issues it could be in a law school, it could be in an organization that deals with human rights, or in uh, private practice as a lawyer. So the Inter-American Commission works on this basis, seven other, other uh, lawyers, and then it has a secretariat that is based in Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. being the base of the Organization of American States. Taking into account that the Commission is a principal organ of the organization, it is also based in Washington. That does not mean that the Commission does not deploy its work around the hemisphere. It, for example, performs hearings or it does sessions in different countries uh, every now and then. Uh, they could go to Southern Cone Country, the Andean region, and they will perform some of their sessions in those countries. So, even though the Commission is based in Washington, it has moved quite a bit around the hemisphere, among others, to increase its presence and uh, impact uh, by holding these sessions in some of the countries, many of them with important human rights challenges. This uh, Commission 
uh, is elected, each one of the commissioners, for a period of four, four years, elected by the General Assembly of the Organization of American States, and each one of them can be re-elected only once, so a total of uh, eight years. Let's quickly begin to talk about the dual mandate that the Commission has. As I mentioned before, the Commission, in the first place, has a promotional mandate, which means that it can deploy all sorts of mechanisms that could eventually engage states in a diplomatic sphere, sometimes in a political conversation, not in the realm of adjudication of cases. And then you have the second dimension of the Inter-American Commission, which is precisely the protective mode, the protection of human rights, that is mainly, mainly focused in the adjudication of cases, the entertainment or entertaining complaints by victims before its proceedings. So this two-fold mandate of the Commission gives it a very ample opportunity to choose and deploy different tools depending on the circumstances, on the situation that it has to confront in one of the countries of the hemisphere. And again, it has done so in many, many years, depending if it had to confront uh, gross systematic violations of human rights that unfortunately occurred in prior decades, or if it has to deal only with isolated violations of human rights, which more appropriately were dealt with individual complaint system. This ample range of opportunities to deploy different working methods gives the Commission one of the most uh, interesting and impactful uh, uh, powers that any international uh, intergovernmental human rights organization has uh, nowadays. The Commission, on its uh, first uh, role, the promotional role, the Commission has several very specific tools that has used very often in the past. In the first place, the Commission has the possibility of issuing reports. Uh, the Commission, for example, has issued several reports regarding uh, several states of the Americas. They are the so-called special reports on states or country reports. Uh, until now, the, it has issued more than 68 reports regarding the situation of human rights in many of the, country of the countries of the hemisphere. It has issued even two and three reports regarding some specific states of the Americas. Again, seeking to contribute and engage in a conversation with those states in order to improve the human rights situation in those countries. These country reports can be issued separately or included in the annual report of the Commission. In the annual report of the Commission, the so-called Chapter 4 reports of the Inter-American Commission have been an important tool to engage countries in a, a conversation about the best way to improve the human rights situation in their jurisdictions. The second type of reports that the Commission has uh, issued in its history are the so-called thematic reports. These thematic reports have increasingly gained an important space in the work of the Commission. In the, its first years of development, we did not see many thematic reports. The Commission mainly focused its work on country reports. However, with the transition to democracy of most countries of the hemisphere, the change of environment, political environment, in the Americas, we began to see the emergence of many specific issues that the Commission, among others, began to tackle using the uh, 
uh, thematic reports that is authorized to issue. The Commission up to now has issued close to 70 uh, thematic reports, uh, all of them available online in its site and in full text, both in English and Spanish, and sometimes in French and Portuguese. So a very important source regarding standard setting in the Inter-American system. If you visit these specific reports, you will find a lot of information on how the Commission understands the scope of application, both of the Declaration and the Convention, regarding a very specific issue. Let me give you some quick examples. The Commission, for example, in, 19, in 2002, issued a very important uh, comprehensive report that dealt with terrorism and human rights. And if you go to that report, you will basically find uh, a very interesting quasi-index or digest of jurisprudence of those issues that are relevant to the use of counter-terrorism powers by states and the need to preserve human rights while, in fact, and, uh, implementing those counter-terrorism measures. So the Commission issued this comprehensive report and basically restated some of the law that for many decades the Commission had been developing both in its country practice and in its case practice. Uh, additionally, the Commission subsequently has touched upon many, many uh, topics. I can give you a few examples. It has dealt with human rights defenders. It has dealt with children, independence, impartiality of the judiciary. The Commission has uh, approached issues related to prisons, migrant persons, uh, death penalty, the rights of women, access to justice, economic and social cultural rights, indigenous uh, peoples and Afro-descendants, internet and human rights, organized crime. If you see a very broad spectrum of topics that are extremely important. And again, if you visit the website of the Commission, you will see how this organ touches and develops law in the current conditions. For example, the internet report on human rights is one of the latest reports, 2016, which again, we would be very interested for those interested to visit in the website of the institution. The second type of work or tool, working method of the Commission, is that related to the so-called on-site visits. The Commission is indeed authorized, based on its statute, to perform on-site visits to any of the states of the Organization of American States. And that Commission has done so very early in its creation. Since the first years, 1962, the Commission went to several states, perform on-site visits, and engage with local governments to try to cooperate in the uh, uh, improvement, promotion, and improvement of the human rights conditions in those countries. The on-site visits uh, did prove to be one of the most important instruments of supervision and cooperation with states to try to overcome, among others, gross and systematic violations of human rights. The Commission very creatively deployed this tool during many uh, periods of history in the Americas to help overcome some of the most serious situations of human rights in the hemisphere. And it is considered to be one of the most important tools to confront these widespread human rights violations, these widespread human rights violations around the hemisphere. Uh, a third aspect that we would like to make reference to is to rapporteurships. 
Rapporteurships uh, are uh, an institution that was developed in the latest stages of development of the practice of the Commission. For many decades, the Commission did not work with a system of rapporteurships, and, and specifically thematic rapporteurships. The Commission simply worked with uh, country rapporteurships. One of the members, or each one of the members, will have two, three, or five states from, of which they are in charge, but did not work on the, from the perspective of thematic rapporteurships. This began to happen at the end of the 90s. And now the Commission has several rapporteurships that have proven to be very effective and quite significant in standard setting. Let me mention to you uh, some of them. There is a rapporteurship on the indigenous peoples, one on the rights of women, uh, one on the rights of migrants, freedom of expression, rights of uh, the child, human rights defenders, persons deprived of liberty, Afro-descendants and racial discrimination, rights of LGBTI persons, economic, social, and cultural rights, and then three units that have been recently created, one on memory, truth, and justice, one on older persons, and finally, one on persons with disabilities. If you make a correlation between the topics that are subject to rapporteurships and those that are subject to the thematic reports, you will find significant, significant uh, synergies. That is because once rapporteurships were in place, these are the main catalyzers of thematic reports of the Inter-American Commission. So there's a direct relationship between the work of those rapporteurships and the deployment of the reports, thematic reports of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Uh, Fourth, let me mention a very important space that the Commission has created in a very proactive way, and I do believe that it's extremely important, particularly for civil society organizations. Uh, it is the uh, so-called hearings of the Commission. The Commission does perform public hearings, and it receives presentations both by states and by civil society organizations and other stakeholders of the Organization of American States to inform itself about human rights situation in a country, in the whole region, in a particular topic. And increasingly, these hearings have a very important place in the work of the Commission. The hearings are probably one of the most sought spaces by civil society organizations regarding the protection of human rights. Civil society organizations that are representative of victims and others that work around the Inter-American Commission have found the hearings to be one of the most important spaces to empower their national work. So the Commission has always, since the creation of the Internet, uh, use this technology to stream live its hearings and to keep webcasts of the hearings regarding every country, regarding every topic. You will find them in the website if you are interested. It's a very interesting view. And I do believe that it could very well complement this exercise if you want to go further in depth into the audiovisuals of the work of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Uh, the Commission also holds hearings not only regarding the general situation of uh, states, but also in the context of cases in which you will be able to verify the legalized, the judicialized conversation in the realm of the proceedings of the Commission that would eventually subsequently go to the Inter-American Court 
on human rights. Uh, finally, I would just mention that the Commission is a consultative organ of the, Amer of the Organization of American States. This is a foundational power of the Commission and very important regarding the role of promotion of human rights, working with states to strengthen their, na its na their national capacity in the protection of uh, human rights. Uh, fourth, let me now turn quickly to the adjudicatory powers of the Inter-American Commission the complaint system. The complaint system of the Commission, it has been one of the most important aspects of the work of the Commission and increasingly gained importance, particularly after the transition to democracy of most countries of the hemisphere. The conversation between the Commission and states began to turn into more legal aspects, began to turn into the judicial aspect and away from more political tools that, of course, are usually deployed when we are talking about serious, systematic, and gross violations of human rights. When we have democracies, there is a more nuanced conversation between international mechanisms from that judicial point of view. The Commission uh, has developed very, very uh, carefully its proceedings, among others because those cases will reach the court. And nowadays, we do see how the Commission has judicialize the proceedings in cases to the extent now that the court is able to recognize and validate almost all of the proceedings in the commission, which makes it only one procedure that's good for states, that's good for victims, and for the system as such. Uh, I would like to mention a couple of important aspects of the work of the commission in the realm of uh, individual complaints. First of all, we always have to bear in mind that these are subsidiary mechanisms. The procedures before the Commission are governed by this principle, the principle of subsidiarity. And the Commission and the Court have recognized this principle in many ways. The first one, of course, which is common to any international human rights regime, the rule of exhaustion of national remedies, also present in the American Convention and the declaration system of the Inter-American Commission, and has been a principal uh, rule that has governed many of the cases and that creates some interesting dynamics in the both international and national litigation of cases. A second aspect of, of the world work of the Commission that emanates from the principle of subsidiarity is the so-called fourth instance formula. This fourth instance formula basically indicates that the commission is different with states that have strong judiciaries, that are able to provide people a day in court for the protection of the rights recognized under the convention or the declaration, and that therefore it won't review certain type of cases unless there is a manifest violation of the American convention, or unless we are talking about serious violations of human rights, such as torture, arbitrary executions, etc. In those situations, the Commission does not apply the fourth instance formula. So this sends a message that the Commission is willing to work with states even in this space of cases, if they indeed have strong judiciaries that will assume the primary responsibility under the American Convention to protect these human rights in the domestic uh, level. The second, second aspect that I would like to mention to you is the so-called pro-omine principle. It is a 
special principle that governs human rights regimes and that basically instructs those that interpret norms that operate under the human rights normative that they have to be interpreted in the most favorable way to the individual, the pro homini, in favor of the individual. And this expresses in many ways, just to give you an example, there is a very intense search in the work of the Commission and the Inter-American Court on Human Rights of the most protective standard in a particular case. And sometimes that standard is not found under the American Declaration or the American Convention. In several cases, we have found that the most protective standard was not even in the hemisphere, was in an instrument of the organization of the, uh, of the United Nations, of the International Labor Organization 169. Just to give you an example in which indigenous communities did benefit from more protective standards that are applied through an exercise of interpretation in the American Convention on Human Rights. So this will give you some ideas of the type of work that the Commission does in the promotion and protection on human rights and the very important role that many of its tools have in improving the human rights conditions in the hemisphere. Thank you very much.